Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, Ken, it's exciting. We have a new character this week. We do, and probably more judges to become long-suffering. <laughs> so this week's new character, uh, well, it's sort of a reboot of an old character if you were following trials like this eight years ago. Senator Robert Menendez, Bob Menendez from New Jersey, has been indicted along with his wife and three New Jersey businessmen. You know, it's Ken, first of all, it's shocking to see this coming out of New Jersey, of all states. Yeah. And, you know, I did some research. You know, I like to do prepare for episodes. I did some research and actually there there is not a lower standard of proof for indicting people from New Jersey. I had assumed <laughs> that there was. Uh, but no, it's the same as anyone else. Same beyond a reasonable doubt standard at the trial. <laughs> exactly. Weird. So anyway, uh, the senator and his wife and these three businessmen have been indicted uh, for an alleged bribery scheme where the senator and his wife were provided with gifts, allegedly including envelopes full of cash and gold bars. That's I don't I've never even held a gold bar. It's, it, it didn't even occur to me that that was still a way that you could bribe people these days. But uh, apparently there were these one ounce gold bars. Well, apparently Senator Menendez was not familiar with it either because he uh, after he received the gold bars, he went home and Googled how much is a gold bar worth? <laughs> and then he put it in cash into his personalized jacket that had his name embroidered on it <laughs> in his home. And Josh, you know what that is? What is that? That's just considerate because yeah. Bob Menendez is a guy who was previously indicted back in 2015 on bribery for an entirely different alleged scheme out of Florida. Yeah. And um, in that one, uh, the jury hung, and in part because of a Supreme Court case that complicated the law, he wasn't retried. So here you've got these these poor federal prosecutors. It's not an easy job. They're nervous. They're wondering whether they can do it right the second time. And here's Bob Menendez just being considerate, Googling yeah. how much is a, is a gold bar worth, leaving the bribe in the personalized jacket. I mean, th that's class. Well, so I think the important part for us to talk about in terms of whether this is a case that will be easier to make stick than that 2015 case is what the senator is alleged to have done in exchange for these gifts, which is, you know, they, they say that one of these businessmen had a monopoly on a certain kind of halal certification that was possibly going to be undermined and that the senator uh, spoke to people at the USDA and tried to get them to keep this guy's halal monopoly. They allege that he took certain efforts to, to benefit the government of Egypt, which this businessman was was associated with. And that's that's interesting because it's contrary to the senator's public stance, which has been very critical of the Egyptian government for human rights abuses and such. And then you have another businessman who was under indictment. The allegation is there is that the senator tried to get a U.S. attorney appointed, actually succeeded at getting this particular U.S. attorney appointed, who he thought would go easy on the guy. It's not clear that that part ended up being true. Um, but it's also not clear that that matters. They thought that the, the that this U.S. attorney would be a good pick for Menendez's friend who was under indictment. And then the sorry, there's one other key thing. And, the, and he called the uh, local prosecutors in oh, yes. New Jersey on another criminal case to try to influence them. Right. So the key issue 
from these cases, most prominently the one involving former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, is what's an official act? And, you know, are the things that the elected official is alleged to have done in exchange for gifts, are those actually a use of his office? Um, because in some cases, if it's just, you know, the, the the governor makes introductions to certain people and talks up somebody's product, but doesn't direct the University of Virginia to open a study about it, that's sort of where they fell down with McDonnell, that it wasn't clear that the things he did were official acts. What do you make of the list of things that Senator Menendez is accused of here and the the viability of a prosecution around these as official acts in exchange for gifts. So this looks like it's very deliberately calculated to um, satisfy the requirements in the McDonald case from back in 2016. Uh, It's deliberately calculated to show that Bob Menendez, even if he didn't do official acts himself, he used his official influence to influence other government officials in in official acts, which is one of the things that the McDonald case says that you can do. That it's illegal if you do in exchange for for gifts. And it's illegal. It's bribery. This is part of a trend. You know, generally, the United States Supreme Court has retreated fast from the high water mark of the Warren Court in the 60s and 70s in terms of protecting the rights of criminal defendants. The exception would be with politicians. So in (laughs) general, the court over the last two decades has made it harder to prosecute politicians for different types of corruption. And this is one of the areas. We've talked before about the whole honest services fraud theory and how, you know, you can't use mail fraud and wire fraud to prosecute politicians unless there's a loss of money. Um, Here, what the court did was say, no, an official act has to be something real and tangible that you have a duty to do, not just vaguely setting up meetings. So here, the official acts would be uh, allegedly uh, Bob Menendez um, using his his power to um, suggest someone to the president to nominate as U.S. attorney, which is a traditional power of senators in states, uh, to try to influence local politicians in official acts of prosecution, and to try to influence the USDA in official acts of whether or not to allow this monopoly on halal certification. So, uh, And there's a whole bunch of other details in there. That really smacked to me as something that may get expanded in a superseding indictment. So there are details about basically leaking information to the Egyptian government uh, that seems to me undeveloped as it is in the indictment at the moment and just sort of screams for some sort of supplemental charges to, to cover. Uh, but this is something where clearly they think this time we got him. Uh, he has the same attorney he did before. About who was uh, successfully defended him back in uh, 2017, I think it was Abby Lowell, who's also representing Hunter Biden. He is. He's a he's a busy man these days. Yeah, uh, it's not clear whether or not Menendez is still under warranty uh, for, for that acquittal. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and uh, Menendez is coming out swinging though, right? Right. Well, so, I mean, I, I find, first of all, what, what you described there interesting, because the way a lot of people talk about the McDonald decision and related decisions is people will say the Supreme Court legalized bribery. And they'll talk about it like you can't prosecute politicians for bribery anymore. And that's, I, I think what we're seeing here is that's a bit overstated, that the McDonald decision narrowed what you could prosecute people for. And there's been controversy about it, although I would note, not within the Supreme Court, the McDonald decision was a unanimous decision. Right. It wasn't some left-right thing. Um, but if politicians think it's, you know, legal to do whatever they want in this area, that they are potentially in for a rude awakening like the senator seems to be facing. Yeah. The Supreme Court's whole thing for a while has been there's a distinction between sleazy and criminal. 
and that there's a vast array of sleazy behavior. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, Chris Christie's team uh, blockading a bridge out of a, a fit of spite towards local politicians, that just isn't criminal. And uh, McDonnell was a case that was similar where, you know, allegedly McDonnell was setting up meetings and making referrals, but not telling anyone, I think you should do this official act on behalf of my friend who's giving me stuff. Here, uh, this is all much more crass and grotesque and uh, extreme. So I, I think they feel they have an easier case. Well, and, and and the rationale behind that distinction, right, is that the, they want to avoid criminalizing politics, that politics involves a lot of, you know, people making introductions and suggestions to each other, and that you, the, essentially the, the courts end up in what's a political area if you get too broad about it. Well, exactly. And, and ironically, this is an issue that's playing out on the national stage right now with talk about Hunter Biden and influence peddling. As we've said before, there is a vast amount of influence peddling that is sleazy, but it is not criminal. And so we're kind of talking about the same issues at the same time. You, you know what I liked about this, Josh? What's that? I liked Bob Menendez coming out with his explanation yes. that the reason he has gold bars and you know four hundred fifty thousand dollars in cash is because he's Cuban, right? More or less, you know, because there's his parents' experience in Cuba and the unreliability of banks and money being confiscated. So I, I guess this is now going to be the thing. Like, you know, you've got Cuomo saying, I don't grab women's breasts because I'm a sexual harasser. It's because I'm Italian. Right. Menendez is, you know, I, I don't I, I don't take bribes uh, because I'm a crook. I'm a Cuban. And <laughs> I, I think we need a list of the countries and like, you know, what what behavior it leads to. I don't see any problem with us making a list like that, Josh. I, I think that would go over great. I mean, one one thing that I the, that I thought was interesting about those statements is, I mean, it's you know, he also when he gave this press conference at which he took no questions, but laying out his defense, he gave the statement in English, and then he gave the entire statement again in Spanish to sort of underline the "I'm Hispanic" thing. Right. And the prior the prior week, the initial statement he put out was like, you know, it's not lost on me that people are rushing to judgment on a Latino. So he's leaning hard into that as a political argument, and his and his base is in the is in Hudson County, right across the Hudson River from New York in a heavily Hispanic area of New Jersey. And that's, you know, when if he if he really intends to run for re-election, that's going to be a base that he's counting on in next year's vote. I don't think it's going to work. There's a poll that came out this week that had his favorable rating at 8% in New Jersey. But anyway, that's this is clearly a political strategy to say, you know, I'm being railroaded because of my ethnicity. But the problem is he's not just in a political situation, he's also in a legal situation. Right. And so when he made these statements about I withdrew the money, he's locking himself into a story in his legal defense, right? Right. And one of the immediate problems that comes up with that is that in the indictment, the government claims that they found the fingerprints and or DNA of his co-conspirators on these envelopes full of cash, which would seem to contradict Menendez's story that he withdrew this money himself from his own personal bank accounts. And so is it actually undermining his legal defense that he's out there making specific, frankly, probably false claims about exactly what it was he was up to? is absolutely undermining his legal defense. Um, and I think that he saw that uh, the tide was turning against him politically, uh, very, very unlike 
what's happened with Republicans recently. A lot of Democrats started coming out saying that he should resign. Uh, he felt he had to push back. And so he comes out with this, frankly, terrible story uh, about how he had withdrawn this and apparently gone to some sort of gold bar ATM or something uh, to, <laughs> to take money out. Um, but yeah, if if that is contradicted by evidence and they can show that at the trial that he lied about this in public to show consciousness of guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's not great. No, it's not. You mentioned Democrats calling for him to resign. There's also been a surprising number of Republicans sticking up for him, seemingly in order to stick up for the idea that it's okay to have Donald Trump be a presidential nominee. They can't go out there and say, if you're indicted, you ought to resign from office. Um, and Tom Cotton, uh, the Republican senator from Arkansas was one of the first people out with a statement like this. And he says, you know, the, the accusations are concerning. And he says, at the same time, the Department of Justice has a troubling record of failure and corruption cases against public figures from Ted Stevens to Bob McDonald to Donald Trump to Bob Menendez the last time around. Um, and then you have statements from a lot of people basically saying that he's entitled to a presumption of innocence. And so, of course, he's entitled to a presumption of innocence in the court. I Obviously, this is not directly a legal question, but I find it a little bit weird the way people throw that around as though to imply that therefore all the rest of us have to presume that somebody has been who's been charged with a crime is, is innocent to that crime. I mean, the, the Constitution only imposes that restriction on the court. It doesn't impose it on the rest of us. And then similarly with, you know, when you point to McDonald or, or Trump or the first Menendez case, there is this legal argument about, you know, certain sleazy things are not crimes. Right. But then it's, you know, it's not great to say, well, this guy, you know, he should continue to serve in the Senate because he did these very sleazy things, but they weren't crimes. Right. And so, and that's a classic uh, conundrum. Usually we come up with this presumption of innocence argument about public discussion when it's somebody on our side uh, and we abandon it when it's someone on the other side. And it definitely isn't applied to uh, people who commit other types of crimes who aren't politicians. You know, we assume the guilt of people on the news caught doing whatever all the time. And I, I think the the Congress has a uh, both a power and an obligation to make its own determinations about whether someone is suitable, especially because, you know, using a presumption of innocence and we're going to wait for the court system to play out can literally mean the person's there for years. Uh, right. as, as we see here, this, this search was a while ago. Yeah. I mean, and also like, it wouldn't be okay to have a system where we just read what's in the indictment. And if it sounds convincing, then you send the person away to a prison term, but as elected officials or as members of the press or as interested members of the public, I think we can read an indictment and sometimes say this looks thin and sometimes say this looks really damning. I mean, I think it's, again, it goes back to those pictures of the, the cash falling out of his jacket with his name embroidered on it. This indictment is a very convincing indictment. Well, yeah, it's a speaking indictment, which is very much the fashion now. It, it tells the story and it tells it in a vivid way. And it even has pictures, which is also a, a relatively new innovation. Uh, you know, back when I was in AUSA, uh, we didn't put pictures or, you know, daguerreotypes or whatever. Into well, you would have had to like paste them onto the like onto the pages of the indictment, right? Like. Well, exactly. Like, like with a glue stick. Uh, the printing press didn't work that way back then. Uh, so, um, yeah, but I think people now realize uh, that this is an extremely effective of, way of conveying the government's case early on. And we've seen other politicians complain about that, and notably Donald Trump and his lawyers. Speaking of Donald Trump, he went to a gun show in South Carolina and there was a gun that had a, a 
picture of him engraved on it, which was shown to him. And he handled the gun and he made these comments on camera about he'd like to buy the gun. And his campaign put this out on social media, suggesting that he had bought the gun. And then various people pointed out that that would be illegal, that he's uh, (laughs) under federal felony indictment and he's not allowed to receive firearms. And so the campaign quickly said... He didn't really buy the gun. And I and I believe them, by the way, when Donald Trump, you know, is at a campaign event and says, I'm going to buy this. I think my first instinct is to assume that he's lying. Right. So I, I will let's stipulate to the idea that he did not, in fact, purchase the gun. Um, I guess the issue here is technically that could still be a crime that being even being physically handed the gun that could constitute receiving a gun. Is he going to be indicted for that? No, but it is potentially a crime. And the, the reason is that under Title 18, Section 922, which has a laundry list of ways you can get in trouble with guns, one of the things unlawful is to receive a firearm when you're under indictment for a crime punishable uh, by more than a year for a felony. And Donald Trump, of course, is uh, uh, charged with felonies in multiple locations uh, across the greater part of the eastern seaboard. And um, so this is plausibly a crime. Receive is generally construed so broadly that it could basically be possess. And possess is construed so broadly that it could very much mean holding something. And in fact, I've seen, I know that gang members get prosecuted just because they're posing in pictures with guns with no more proof than that, uh, while they're under indictment, uh, showing that they received it because here, look, he's at, he's in it with a picture, and that's not the only proof they have. So if if Trump were you know a rolling sixties crip or something uh, under indictment who had this picture out, he could totally plausibly get indicted. Uh, as a politician, he's he's not going to be. Uh, they would see it as you know kind of too chicken shit. But everyone's going to laugh about it, and everyone is particularly going to laugh about his campaign, you know, eagerly uh, putting out there that he's going <laughs> to buy this gun with this picture on it. And then, wait, no, no, we totally <laughs> didn't mean that. We're sorry. So it explained federal criminal law to us. And, and, and now we see we were wrong. Um, is this law constitutional? Excellent question. So um, you asked that question because there's this recent trend of cases arising from a recent Supreme Court case that said, more or less, that the only restrictions on gun ownership that we're going to possess are those that were traditional and normal at the time of the Second Amendment was created. And so some things have been struck down. And we've talked about how at least one court has struck down the statute under which Hunter Biden has been indicted, the idea of owning and possessing a gun uh, while an addict. Uh, Here, the question is going to be historically, were there laws that said that, you know, while you're accused of a crime, you can't have a gun? And I believe that this has already been litigated and that uh, courts have gone two ways. I don't think it's gone to a circuit yet. I think it's just been trial courts. But the whole area of the Second Amendment, Josh, is right now in flux because of that Supreme Court case a few years ago. So it's something that's going to get worked out over the next you know, two to five years. The public safety rationale for this law, I mean, certainly in this instance, like I'm, I'm not concerned that Donald Trump is going to take this gun with his face engraved on it and shoot somebody. Um, but it also, it seems to me like, you know, if, if we're concerned about the public safety risks associated with people under felony indictment who are on pretrial release, owning or possessing a firearm, can't that be handled by the judges when they set conditions of, of pretrial release rather than having a blanket law that makes it into a, a criminal offense? Well, 
It can be, and it is. So uh, conditions of release uh, often include gun uh, terms and things like that. Uh, and, and notably about this statute, it does not prohibit you from possessing a gun while right. you're under indictment. If you already owned the gun. Yeah. You you can be a, you know, a survivalist with an arsenal and, and you're cool. Uh, it's just you can't get new ones. Uh, so I guess the, the idea is we we don't want some hothead who's under indictment now decide he needs a gun. So Unless he already owns a gun like about a third of Americans do. In which case it's fine. Right. But so, I mean... I guess, you know, the the Congress gets a fairly broad leash in terms of does this policy make sense? But because of that that thing where, like, if you already own the guns, you can still have the guns. It, it doesn't seem like an especially well-crafted policy in terms of reducing the risk of gun violence. It doesn't. But we only evaluate how sensible Congress's policy is when there's a constitutional right in play. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of talking about, like, uh, tests like strict scrutiny or rational basis or that type of thing. And the question is whether that's triggered. And that's what is being sort of evaluated now uh, with the Second Amendment issue. Uh, but I, I agree, it's, it's questionable rationale. It doesn't make a, a lot of sense. Let's talk about a ruling from Judge Tanya Chutkin in the federal criminal case against Donald Trump about the events leading up to January 6th. She has denied a motion requesting that she recuse herself from the case. And this was brought by Trump, uh, citing remarks that she made in two different sentencings of January 6th defendants, in which she made remarks about the fact that Donald Trump had not been uh, had, had not been indicted for his actions related to January 6th. And in one case, talking about how the, the people who mobbed the Capitol were there in fealty and loyalty to one man, not to the Constitution, uh, not to the ideals of this country, and not to the principles of democracy. It's blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to this day, unquote. So this is the, this is one of the key statements where they're saying this shows that she's biased against Trump and can't sit in judgment of him and they need a new judge. And she issued a, a ruling just saying no. Right. And I think had a good argument for no. Well, this is the result everyone expected, and it's right under the law. And you can argue with whether the law is right or not, but I don't think you can really argue with this result. So what the law says about judicial recusal is uh, you can make a judge be recused if they are biased based on an extrajudicial source. Like, you know, the defendant is their neighbor and he's always, you know, letting the dog poop on the lawn or something like that. If if that's the source of the bias, then that's a legitimate basis for recusal. But you generally can't recuse a judge for intrajudicial bias. That is for impressions the judge forms based on cases before that judge. And so here, Judge Shutkin's point is that everything she said in those sentencings in those January 6 cases was based on the record before her and in fact was in service of her obligation. She's required by statute when she sentences someone to consider their relative culpability with other people and the entire context and that type of thing, and that that's what she was doing. And she cites very convincing precedent, including uh, a Watergate case, where the judge hearing uh, the um, the cases of some of the Watergate figures made reference to the stuff the judge saw in other Watergate cases. And the idea was, well, that's intrajudicial. You learned it in your capacity as a judge legitimately, and it's okay. And this rule kind of makes sense if you think about it, because otherwise judges couldn't 
uh, have related cases. They couldn't have cases, you know, that you couldn't have more than one January 6th case, for instance, because you might right. form an opinion about January 6th based on that first case. There's another narrower exception where recusal is appropriate. And that's where the judge's statements are so extreme that they just show that they can't possibly be neutral. They can't possibly judge it based on the facts of the case. And that's a, a very tough standard. And, and just to give you a flavor, the classic case where that was found to be triggered was World War II era where the where there was a German defendant and the, the, the judge said, one must have a very judicial mind indeed not to be prejudiced against the German Americans in this country. Their hearts are <laughs> reeking with disloyalty. A friend of mine was a bank robber for nine years. And as between him and this defendant, I prefer the bank robber. So you got to go pretty far to reach that point where they say, OK, yeah, uh, you're off this. I thought it was interesting that the two cases uh, where recusal was was merited that they discuss in here, because they're so different from each other. One is that that German-American case. The other was the antitrust case that the U.S. brought against Microsoft in the 1990s. Um, and they talked there about how Microsoft eventually successfully got the judge removed from that case. Um, and uh, as Chutkin notes, they, the, that decision to remove him had to do with his deliberate, repeated, egregious, and flagrant statements about the case, which he gave in public speeches and in private interviews with reporters that he hadn't disclosed and that he uh, divulged his views on the proper remedy for Microsoft's antitrust violations. I mean, this this doesn't seem like the sort of like high emotionality case where you might get this sort of behavior, but that that sort of seemed like a description of, of how far a judge would have to go in terms of running their mouth about what they thought of the parties in a case and what remedies they thought were appropriate, which obviously does not apply here. It doesn't. And, and the funny thing about this is it, it, it illustrates the gulf between judicial culture and lawyer culture and normal people. Because the standard is, if you read it, would a reasonable person fully informed of the facts think that this judge is biased? So if you read it that, you, you might think that these comments from Judge Chutkin suggest bias. But then once you get into the case law, it's very much, well, we don't mean your type of reasonable person. We mean someone in our culture. And of course, no one in this judicial lawyer culture would think that this indicates bias. So no, it's not. So it, it just kind of shows the gulf between the way lawyers and judges think and the way that normal humans think. So I assume the Trump team did not expect Judge Chutkin to recuse herself. I assume the plan all, all along has been to appeal this ruling. Will they have any success with that? No, they have, if anything, even less chance on appeal than they do in the trial court. And, and generally, even when judges on the court of appeals have a sort of noticeable political lean, it does not tend to uh, go to the benefit of anyone making recusal arguments. Uh, judges are protective of judges and and uh, very suspicious of recusal demands. Right. Which, by the way, I think we should note the a lot of the wish casting about that Eileen Cannon would get taken off the, the Florida case. I assume that same dynamic applies there in the in the event that the, the government ever decided in the future to try to get rid of her. Absolutely. It's the same thing we've talked about before. Uh, the decision she made in the prior case where she interfered w really without any legal basis with the investigation, if it goes up to the circuit again, she does something similarly crazy, then maybe they'll send it to a different judge, but she's not done nothing that's going to get her recused yet. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. 
one of the men keeping Abby Lowell busy these days. In addition to being under indictment for that gun charge and facing a pretty likely indictment on tax charges, uh, he's now on offense. He's suing Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani's longtime lawyer, Robert Costello, who we talked about last week because Costello is suing Giuliani for not paying him. Now Hunter is suing both of them uh, for disseminating the files from his alleged laptop. And so remember that the the idea is that Hunter Biden and, you know, one of his more derelict states left his laptop at this random laptop repair shop in Delaware. And the guy who owns the shop ends up discovering that it's Hunter Biden's laptop and it has all this interesting, damaging information on it. And he shares it with certain Republican operatives. And then we end up getting these leaks of both business communications and naked photos and, and all this stuff. And Hunter has never admitted that that he ever left his laptop there or that the or that these files came from his laptop. And they've always sort of insinuated like, well, you know, maybe they fixed they mixed in fake stuff with real stuff if there is any real stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Now he's alleging without without admitting that this was his laptop, he's alleging that Giuliani and Costello broke into a device that had the information from the laptop on it, some sort of external hard drive, that they exceeded their authorized access to it, presumably by entering a password that they weren't supposed to have. Um, and then they shared that information. That this is a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and he's suing them. This you know comes on top of he's already suing the IRS. Normally, when we talk about civil litigation, when you're under indictment, we talk about how it's hazardous that like, you know, you don't want to be in civil court having to testify about things you'd rather not talk about in criminal court. Now, Hunter Biden is not just in civil court. He's the plaintiff in civil court in two different cases. What's the strategy here? Is this a good idea? Uh, well, it, it's not a good idea with respect to his pending gun case, and it's not a good idea with respect to his certainly about to be indicted tax case. But I, I, I speculate that that's as far as I'm willing to go. I speculate that the theory is here that those cases, you know, the, the fix is in and he kind of knows what the outcome of those is going to be. They're not really defensible. This probably is about gathering information and doing things to head off a possible prosecution of him for things related to what's, you know, on that laptop slash hard drive that he's trying to sort of throw chaff in the air um, to prevent in the, in the event of a Trump administration, make it harder uh, to go after him, or at least to get intel about what everyone knows, what everyone has disclosed, whether or not Trump or anyone else was behind Rudy doing, doing these things, and so forth. Um, it's a bizarre complaint, Josh. It's a bizarre case. I mean, first you've got the sort of litigation polycule element of uh, Hunter suing Rudy <laughs> and Costello, who's also suing Rudy. Um, and then you've got this element where it's just bizarre. Um, Hunter saying, well, I'm not saying, first of all, I'm not saying this is mine, but if it were, it wouldn't be a laptop. It would be an external hard drive. And I'm not saying that I had an external hard drive or I left it anywhere or that anything on it is actually mine, but they broke into it and that would be wrong. And also they changed the content on there, but the content was private to me, which to me is just not a <laughs> terribly coherent run of, of facts. Um, and then you've got all these fascinating spin-off, well, fascinating the lawyers, spin-off questions about uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which normally prevents you from hacking into a protected computer. I don't know. And, and I think uh, 
Oren Kerr, who's the, the national expert on the uh, uh, computer fraud and abuse act, was questioning, well, wait, does it does this apply to hacking into an external hard drive as to opposed to a computer? Uh, that's not completely clear. And then the, I find the kind of the allegations in this incoherent because he's, he seems to be both pr- producing a narrative that everything that that Rudy and Robert Costello said about the contents was made up or they put on there or they altered and that he somehow they somehow intruded into stuff that was private. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a bizarre case. And I think it is mostly um, kind of a, a Trojan horse to get in there and find out stuff about uh, the connection of the Trump administration to anything that was going on with us. Well, so it's, it, when you raise that, I, I, I think you're also alluding to an email that we got from Mitch Epner, uh, a right. uh, friend of the show, raising a hypothetical here, which is if it turns out that he did any of this at the instruction of Donald Trump, who was then president of the United States, is that government misconduct? And would that prevent the government from using any of the information that came out of that in some sort of criminal prosecution of Hunter Biden? Right. So the idea is that if Rudy, some dude down the block with no connection to the government, hacks into your computer and turns over the results to the government, they can use it because the the government didn't do the hacking, didn't violate your rights. But if the government sends Rudy from down the street to hack into your computer, then that can be a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. It shouldn't have been done without a warrant and so forth. So if Hunter Biden can develop information that anyone in the Trump administration knew about this, endorsed it, promoted it, encouraged it, then he's got a colorable argument that um, the information derived from the hard drive uh, was derived in violation of Hunter's Fourth Amendment rights. And that could just throw a big monkey wrench into any prosecution of him that uh, arises from anything on there. And then there's also some California-related claims. The idea that they they also broke certain California laws. Did, did do we know that they did anything in California? How does the, the the laptop, the alleged laptop repair occurred in Delaware? Uh, as far as I know, Rudy Giuliani and Robert Costello both live on the East Coast. What's what does California have to do with this? It's it's not clear to me. Yeah, they they throw in the the California um, Computer Abuse Act, which is sort of an analog, but even more poorly drafted to the federal one. And then there's the California uh, law on unfair business practices, which is basically the thing that you throw in into every single goddamn civil complaint in California <laughs> as one more thing that they did wrong. And, it, you know, it's a classic anyone did anything that's an unfair business practice type of type of thing. Mm-hmm. But the I, I think the idea is that the reason you'd use those is that they're even broader than the federal statute. And so if they decide, you know, like, gee, like a... Uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act doesn't apply to an external hard drive, then maybe you get another bite at the apple with California, but then presumably you also have to show that California had anything to do with this. Yeah, I, I think it is just you always want uh, belts and suspenders. You want multiple theories and, and that type of thing. But no, I'm still a little mystified about what the California angle is. But again, it's a difficult complaint to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Donald Trump, as we noted, uh, uh, under criminal indictment, under felony indictment in various different jurisdictions all along the East Coast, not not in California yet. Uh, he f- filed this very brief motion in his Georgia case, basically saying that they don't intend to try to get the case removed to federal court. Many of his co-defendants have made this effort saying that I was acting as a federal officer and my I ought to be tried in federal court rather than state court, not having success with that argument so far. 
it was widely expected that Trump would try to do that. And, and also, he seemed to likely have a stronger argument than some other people if he were going to make that claim. Now he's not even trying to get the case to move to federal court. Is that weird? Um, maybe a little, but I think it's probably a combination of legal and political strategy. So the judge hearing these cases in federal court, uh, Judge Jones, is um, not deciding ways in, that are favorable for these defendants and is not really receptive to some of the arguments they're making. And I think that that Trump's lawyers probably think that it's not going to be a favorable forum for them and um, that it may require him to uh, sort of um, commit to particular factual scenarios that he doesn't necessarily want to commit to. We saw how people were surprised uh, when some of these people testified in their hearings in uh, the federal court proceeding and how that locked them into stories. I think Trump's lawyers don't want him to do that. Uh, They also may think that sort of the political uh, circus, the spectacle of the Georgia case will be more favorable to Trump uh, than the sort of more dry federal court hearings would be. Uh, The the federal court hearings are going to be more sort of uh, rule bound and based on legal theories and things like that. And the the Georgia thing is going to be an absolute circus. And the Georgia thing could end up being televised also, which federal court definitely won't be. It could be. And and he may think that that benefits him as well. Okay, well, we'll keep watching that. And then finally, let's talk about the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit against the the Trump organization and various people associated with it. The Attorney General got a very favorable ruling from Judge Arthur Engeron uh, in New York Supreme Court. By the way, I like I'm sure a lot of people know this from watching Law and Order, but it drives me absolutely insane. In New York, the trial courts are called Supreme Court which is the stupidest thing ever. And then you get all these news headlines about like New York Supreme Court did this, New York Supreme Court did that. It's just a trial judge. It's the the Court of Appeals is, is our highest court in New York. And so please rename the court. You guys just have to be so special, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Every, every court gets to be supreme in New York. So anyway, uh, he uh, denied a motion for summary judgment from the Trump side and partially granted one from the attorney general's side, finding that Trump Organization and Associates engaged in various kinds of fraud um, and also awarding sanctions uh, against their side, which is, is this a surprising thing to happen before they even go to trial? Uh, Well, I don't think it's surprising that he denied Trump's summary judgment motion, because as this order says in um, extremely irritable fashion, uh, all the arguments Trump made, he's rejected before. And that's why he sanctioned Trump $7,500, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in the context of judicial sanctions means the judge is mad basically because they keep making the same arguments that he thinks are really stupid and he's rejected before and the Court of Appeal has rejected before. Um, so he uses uh, he uses language like this, exacerbating defendants' obstreperous conduct is their continued reliance on bogus arguments in papers and oral argument. That's just a judge who has had it with you, has just had enough. So that part isn't surprising. I think that the... Um, Finding summary judgment in favor of the attorney general, partial summary judgment, uh, is a little surprising. So remember, the the New York attorney general is using this New York state law that gives the AG the power to go after fraud in the business sector, uh, fraud by businesses, even fraud that might not have 
discernible victims who could who could sue for damages. And so what the AG here has been saying is that the Trump organization habitually overvalued properties in the course of making financial statements and getting loans and things like that. And what the judge here said is that, um, yes, it's now undisputed, and therefore I'm giving summary judgment, that these companies, and in particular Trump and uh, uh, Don Jr. and Eric, have engaged in fraud by dramatically overstating the value of things. Uh, and he goes through a long and, and pretty embarrassing um, list of these things. And you can see why he's so irritated about it. Like, uh, and he calls out that they they keep saying that the, uh, you know, the Trump apartment keeps getting uh, listed as having 30,000 square feet, um, <laughs> and, uh, even though it's 10,000 square feet. But what if it was 30,000 square feet? Well, but the Trump organization says, well, you know, measurements are not exact when you're doing square feet. There's some elements of, you know, subjectivity. And the judge is like, <laughs> yes, but not, you know, 200 mm-hmm. percent subjectivity. Right. You, you, you got things how they're, you know, uh, Trump continued to insist on valuing rent controlled apartments as if they were not rent controlled. So escalating their value by about 700 percent. Stuff like that, uh, multiplying by like an order of magnitude, the value of property. And um, it's just so egregious. And, you know, there's a saying, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And this is kind of an example. This stuff is so egregious that the judge just said, you know, there's there's no dispute. There can't be any dispute that this is fraud. Therefore, I'm finding that the AG has established fraud. And the only issues for trial are going to be the amounts of disgorgement and other remedies and some under some of the other causes of action. And so what is that likely to entail? Because I mean, this is sort of the odd thing about this kind of case, right? You were saying normally if you have fraud like this against a, you know, against a bank, for example, you could have a bank that made a loan and then the loan didn't get repaid. And it turns out that the loan was made because the borrower lied about certain financial aspects. And then the bank might bring suit in that case, or you, or you might have criminal charges in that kind of case. But it, here, it's it's not clear to me that there are you know, specific parties that lost money because the Trump organization made these claims. Now, I could imagine, you know, for example, maybe a bank would have charged a higher interest rate if they thought that uh, that the financial situation were worse than it was. And so the bank lost profits, even if it didn't, you know, fail to get repaid on a loan or that sort of thing. But it's sort of I'm trying to think of, you know, exactly how much harm was done by these misrepresentations, and then how that's likely to relate to what the financial penalties or other penalties are likely to be. Well, the penalties that already accrue because of this finding are pretty catastrophic. Now, here I'm relying a lot on New York practitioners who are experts on this, including a friend of the show, Mitch Epner. And they point out that what's happening as a result of this is all these businesses, all these Trump entities lose all their licenses to do business. And that includes their right, basically, to hold and own and get rent from properties in New York. Uh, so that's pretty catastrophic. There's a court-appointed monitor now over all these businesses. That person continues. I understand there's some scenarios in which the businesses can basically be dissolved and you know people repaid from disgorgement. And then there's you know, the AG is asking for, I think, a quarter billion dollars in disgorgement on some of this stuff. And there's all sorts of other penalties. So no matter what, just what's happened so far is pretty catastrophic to Trump and the Trump entities. And it could mean that he basically can't do business in New York. 
people aren't going to like this question. Is is this fair? Because I mean, on a fundamental level, this is not a penalty for misrepresenting the values of properties. This is a penalty for all of the nonsense that Donald Trump has done for the last eight years and trying to steal the election and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I assume that, you know, that investigations and prosecutions like this are, are, are not especially common. They're not. Uh, but I, I think it's one of those getting struck by lightning things. We talk a lot about how, like, a lot of the cases we see don't get brought often. But when they get brought, whoever they get brought against is completely screwed. Right. Uh, and it's catastrophic. And I don't think there's an indication that when the AG brings cases like this against businesses, that the businesses don't get completely screwed like the Trump businesses are. It's a question of when do they get brought, how often. So I think it's absolutely plausible to say that, you know, this is happening because Trump is uh, the hog getting slaughtered and not just the pig getting fat. Um, and that his, his, uh, behavior is so extreme uh, that it gets noticed. But that's not terribly unusual in the system. So is it fair is kind of a philosophical question. Right. Uh, and I would say absolutely. You don't, you know, the, the government, you should worry if the government can completely destroy a company at its whim for doing something that a lot of different companies actually do. But I don't think that's what this is. No, I don't think a lot of companies do this. Right. Yeah. There's a certain amount of subjectivity in valuation estimates. But as, as you noted earlier, there's there's a reasonable range of subjectivity and then there's an unreasonable range. You can you know, you might have a disagreement about whether an apartment is worth two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars. But that doesn't mean that you can go out and claim that it's worth a million and a half dollars. Right. And so I guess the question is, is it fair when businesses engage in extreme overvaluation and dishonesty that doesn't actually cause a loss to banks and others, um, is it fair that that has catastrophic consequences for the company? That's kind of a philosophical policy question. Okay, well, we can we can leave that there on that, uh, that homework question for people to go home and think about. Ken White, thank you so much for speaking with me again this week. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.